Welcome everyone to a very special, very verdant episode of the Twin Geeks cast this week. Uh, we got a theme this time. Everything's green. Why shouldn't it be green? I don't know if you know Calvin. Well, is my is my favorite color. I'm uh, I'm an orange guy. Uh, sorry to disappoint. I, I doubt there's enough orange content out there. To there's few orange nights. Uh, few. Uh, how orange is my valley isn't quite a thing. <laughs> the uh, fried orange tomatoes. I'm not sure. There's actually there's there's enough green films in our history to to kind of cover quite a bit here. Uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed. That's that's why this uh, lineup this week was so easy to kind of achieve. Yeah, just by coincidence. <laughs> I mean, we've done the green fog, but we'll have the green night, and we'll have uh, the green mile, and um, green eggs and ham. Are we are we ready to talk about that yet? <laughs> oh, I, oh damn it! That was what we should have covered. God, we'll get to that eventually. We can do a bit if you want, but sure, sure. Let me let me hear. I I keep forgetting about it. Just give me a little bit of green eggs and ham. It's surprisingly we well de we detailed we <laughs> well detailed <laughs> for a Netflix animation. Lots of green to explore still in the movies. Maybe a future green themed episode we'll have. You mentioned already how green was my valley. Of course, the famous yeah. Oscar winner that beat out uh, Citizen Kane for yeah for best picture. But it's not the only best picture winner that was also green. We have Green Book, of course. Who gets yeah. to Green Book? We'll have Green Knight this year. Yep, be another Oscar winner. There's, of course, the, the famous Soylent Green, yes. you know, the people. Uh, John Wayne's The Green Berets, which he directed as well. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Green Room, the one with uh, Patrick Stewart and Anton Yelchin. Uh, the Green Zone, which was directed by Paul Greengrass. So you got a double dose <laughs> of green there. Uh, of course, your, your superheroes, can't forget superheroes, Green Lantern. And, and there's not just, you know, it's not just an American-centric uh, color. You know, we've got green from around the world as well. We've got Lee Chang Dong's Green Fish. We've got... Uh, Great movie. Tru yep. Yeah. Uh, Truffaut did a film called The Green Room. Uh, we've got a Herzog documentary called Where the Green Ants Dream. And, of course, uh, Hao Xiaoxian's uh, The Green Green Grass of Home. So we've got a, a great uh, array of films to pick from. And that's just films that have green in the title. You know, we talk about the greenest films of all time. You know, you got the famous uh, hue of uh, The Matrix throughout. You know, the green hue overlaid on everything there. You've got Vertigo, of course, and it's been fantastic use of green light throughout. Uh, the overall, you know, the, the, the omnipresent sense of green in the set dressings of Amelie. Green's everywhere. It's the, a it's a fantastic color. I even have, uh, if you're interested to hear, a blurb about green. You have? Yes, I do. I, I did some research this episode for, for our okay. greens. So according to Wikipedia, green is the color between blue and yellow on the visible spectrum. It is evoked by a light which has a dominant wavelength of roughly 495 to 570 nm. In subtractive color systems used in painting and color printing, it is created by a combination of yellow and cyan. In the RGB color model used on television and computer screens, it is one of the additive primary colors along with red and blue, which are mixed in different combinations to create all other colors. By far, the largest contributor to green in nature is chlorophyll, the chemical by which plants photosynthesize and convert sunlight into chemical energy. Many creatures have adapted their... Uh, green environments by taking on a green hue themselves as camouflage. Several minerals have a green color, including emerald, which is colored green by its chromium content. 
So you can see the kind of the lush array of green we have in the world around us. And that's not even mentioning, you know, the green movements in which to preserve our planet. The yes. importance in our world. Green's representation of nature and vitality in life. It's it's truly one of our most uh, magnificent colors out there. So why not honor it with an entire episode of the Twin Geeks cast? And us too being from the evergreen state, obviously. Exactly. Uh, very important to us and in our environment naturally. Mm -hmm. Our flag itself is very green. Yes. So it's, it's a green background with uh, George Washington's face on it. It's also on that green money. And yep. Green, green's the color of money, which is, of course, the most important thing in the world. Yep. Um, my, my, my water bottle here is green, as you can see. So I don't have anything of, green. Uh, you got a little bit of like like light green on your shirt there, I can see. Maybe a book or two in the background. Maybe a little That's yellow. a bit green yeah yeah it's it's a uh, green enough i can see the the audio indicator on our audacity bars here that's green the play button's green green is the color of uh go on on stoplights it's a <laughs> it's a positive color indicating you know our, our movement in the world i have a i have an avocado thingy here that's also green you can see kind of in the corner of my camera yes a lot of the plants and uh healthy things for us to eat are green it's also a sign of vitality exactly. and that uh and health, honestly. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sick today, which is you know you can say by saying you're green under the gills. So you know, there's that too. And it also sometimes represents that uh, yeah you're a little bit uh, green. You're you're not ready for this experience, or you're uh, maybe you're um, not effective as a, a knight. You could say an Arthurian knight. A legend, yeah, a you're Templar. still so fairly new. Yeah, yeah. This might where you get your sense, or maybe. It just means the color, like of a linoleum flooring that represents a, a traversing from one end of life to the end, yeah. kind of like a mile. <laughs> yeah, the, the floors of a death row are always green, which is interesting. Um, yep. There's uh, Christmas, very, very green holiday, Christmas it, and gifts and it, it is green is also the the color of envy which is one of seven deadly sins i don't think any other color is associated with with a, a particular sin. sin so green has that up on every other color there speaking of greenery we have green movies the green night yeah nights are also green how green <laughs> was my night my was, night was very green i was actually going to go see this on saturday but that's when i got sick oh. uh I'm not going to name the culprit here on the cast, but let's just say... We uh, all know who it is. Yeah, we know who you are. <laughs> and you know who you are, most of all. Uh, you can feel your internal guilt and um, green with, uh, you know... Um, guilt. Green with guilt. Green, green with guilt. The, the great deadly sin of guilt. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Like I, I wrote in the Old Man and the Gun that David Lowry is just about to like break out and make something like magnificent and something that's going to like uh, put him in Hollywood as like a major name. Um, the Green Knight seemed pretty evident that it would be that from the start, from A24's positioning of it, from their holding off an entire year while they let out films like First Cow, which were amazing films. It's uh, yeah, it's been probably the mo one of the most hyped up in independent releases for yeah. more than a year now. Like everyone was like like waiting with bated breath over this, you know, around the same time last year, and like just waiting for like a release date to get announced. 
Yeah, I mean, the whole uh, COVID time was released Green Knight Challenge on, on the Twitter. <laughs> I mean, everyone was kind of in a fervor by this point to get into this movie. This and Dune probably were the two that were socially talked about. Like, we need to get back to movies so we could see these two things. I think I think I, now people don't care as much about Dune, though. They don't. Right? They, yeah, the hype died down on that. The, the hype might have gone the other way, but for the Green Knight, I feel like the weight might have been an escalation toward hype. Mm -hmm. uh, for me especially i think it it escalated me toward hype and the final result i think is such a nice blend between a modern art modern art film and a art history buff film uh something like the poetry by anonymous uh the sir guywin and uh the arthurian legend there but also if you followed like sagas you could read into it like the pagan sagas and like a lone man's journey and all these creatures that are representative of uh, different things in the wilderness, like giant trolls and foxes. And if you're well acquainted with any of those poems and, and old stories, I think there's so much more to connect to there. Uh, there was the old Sean Connery movie about Sir Guywin, but, but we haven't quite got like our masterful cinematic take. So there is still poetry and high class art out there that hasn't been properly visualized. So uh, David Lowry doing this one, very important, I think. Mm-hmm. Would you say it was, uh, does it also have like kind of big blockbuster appeal? Uh, that's kind of what some of, <laughs> no. that's, okay, I'm curious because that's what some of the advertising is kind of yeah. like, this is a big, like kind of somewhat action spirited, you know, uh, movie with uh, independent overtones and stuff that, you know, it's going to bring people back to the cinema. You got, you know, like a big name, like, like Dev Patel there and such. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it's a, it, we're bringing, um, you know, Arthurian, you know, sensibilities back to the mainstream was was sometimes what what some of the indication I got, or at least the buzz. Maybe I that's what the could. crowd was like saying they wanted, and that's that's kind of what I was getting back because of it. But I was kind of, just curious to hear. So that that's not the case. I think it very well could happen, just as a result of what the movie is. Um, I don't think it has like the action or a Lord of the Rings thing to it that could really popularize it, and I don't think it could. I don't think it'll like create a market for other things to be made, especially. Mm -hmm. I think it, this might just be like a one done, like this is magnificent. Maybe two other people try Arthurian things and they fail as they usually do, but uh, maybe they do them right. style. And there is a shoot off of like an art branch of Arthurian things being made again. Well, cause it's not like the Arthurian films have ever necessarily gone away. Like no. we just had, they a, just haven't been a, great. We lately. just had a Robin hood film not too long ago. <laughs> Ridley Scott's Robin hood, I think. Right? No, no, that was just even longer ago. I'm talking okay. about the one with Taron Egerton in it. <laughs> That's right. That Everyone wanted to forget that. Uh, let's see. Guy Ritchie did a King Arthur film, and that also didn't go over well. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone thinks these things just get forgotten, but David remembers. They, they are trying to make them always. There's always a conversation happening in back rooms of Hollywood to get the Arthurian stories out there because they are cinematic, I think. Yeah, uh, but it's just that they, they haven't really succeeded <laughs> I feel like uh, A24's specialty is tricking general audiences to, into going like and seeing hyper-specific audience movies. Mm -hmm. um, they're very good at tricking people into seeing things like Hereditary, a D cinema score, Hereditary. They're very good at getting people out and seeing these things that other studios would probably just put on like a on-demand. Yeah, uh, so sometimes they don't. They they feel a little more 
box office pandering, like like or at least more broadly appealing than others. But there, there's no denying, certainly, that they have a you know they're they're bringing more artistic sensibilities to the blockbuster crowd and and doing a great job at luring them in. So it sounds like this one's a resounding success in that manner. About its greenery, I think the one problem it has is actually related to its greenery in that it takes a moment to explain what greenery means, like thematically. Oh, no. as motif. <laughs> um, it's pretty much a quotation of my Annette review from this week, so it bothered me even more because it's like, a yeah, greenery can represent fertility and like male, you know, male strength, but then it also represents rot, which is like exactly the words I wrote in my Annette review. And maybe leave that to critics and don't like analyze your own motif in your movie. Maybe that's not necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have too many other problems exactly. I could see uh, friends who are critics that have had different takes to me where they were like, um, maybe this just isn't the entertainment I was looking for. Maybe I need to be more familiar with the poem. Uh, and they're not finding very much in it. So that's possible too. I don't, I don't imagine it's a long poem. Like, couldn't you have read it like before going into the movies? You could have. <laughs> if, 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 I, yeah. I mean, I have it here. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty easy to get through. It's not like it's a whole novel or series or something. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing. Like, if you're adapting a poem as well, like how, <laughs> how, how much does that translate exactly to the screen and how much do you got to kind of fill in what's not there? Yeah, I think it does a good job visualizing it. You could see my green. I do have something green. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a green. It's a green yeah. Yeah, the Green Knights green book. It would have been weird if it was like blue. <laughs> yeah, it would have been strange. And they sent me a letter uh, saying like, send your bravest knight. Basically the script from the film, just like a, send your bravest knight and see who could uh, decapitate me and, and all land as fierce of a blow. So uh, I thought that was kind of clever. I like A24's marketing, how they reach out to critics in, uh, in uh, significant ways to get people to go see their movies. I already knew I was going anyway. I imagine the people that had problems with it didn't really know about the movie, weren't following it for the last year, and uh, probably just didn't, you know, aren't going mm -hmm. to respond to an art film anyway. Mm -hmm. Do you think, so I imagine this for a lot of people is going to be their first film back to the theaters. This is the film that people have been waiting for. This is the first like really big name film to finally get its release. Yeah. That, that people thought would be actually good. Um, you think this is the, the right one to return for? Oh yeah. Yeah. I can't see any problem returning with this one. And like I said, it'll be hyper specific interests and uh, I'm, I'm fine with uh, people having diverse reactions to it. That would interest me a lot more than, uh, what I saw right at, right away, which is everyone agreed on the Green Knight, and that made me a little cautious, right? Like, uh, if everyone agrees, then it might just be a populist movie, and it is a little bit of that, maybe a little bit of making the legend populist. And uh, I mean, Dev Dev Patel is just so accessible on the screen; like, he looks so natural and uh, ideal on the screen. It it works so much around his face and his presence. Um, and Alicia Vikander, too. I think she's always good in even bad movies. So uh, she gets to play two roles, um, his wife and uh, mistress later on on his journey. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of staged in interesting ways. Like he's at the castle, the Green Knight approaches. He challenges him to a Christmas game. Um, then he has to cut off the knight's head and he does that. And then he's challenged uh, one year hence. He'll have to go and face the knight on his own turf. Um, and so he kind of goes on a journey exploring um, these trials, which test what nobility is in a man. So it is about like, you know, an internal 
being green or or whether you're willing to confront a challenge and um, we find out a lot about him and his night through uh, what he's willing to do. It sounds really uh, interesting and still a film to be excited to go back to the theater for. Once I finally okay. find the time again, I'll, I'll be excited to go check it out. I haven't been back to the theater except for that one time. Oh, yeah. Which makes me sad. Yeah, but I have a bunch of stuff lined up, including on Saturday, that I can't really miss out on. So I'll be back in the theater. Like All of my weekends next month are already booked for showing so right and i'm, I'm going, back I'm hopefully as long yeah. as this delta variant doesn't shut everything down again oh yeah as long as that doesn't happen i'll be there in a couple of weeks and we'll go to something yeah yeah mystery film still yeah one that we didn't announce on the show three weeks ago um, <laughs> for sure uh other than that i'm seeing a suicide squad tomorrow so that's my okay idea. are you excited for that Kind of. <laughs> I'm not unexcited about James Gunn, right? I think that could be fun for me. The trailer looked pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. I love the, I love the use of Steely Dan in it. That was I, effective. I'm really on a Steely Dan kick, which maybe we should talk about next week. Maybe we can should... we? Can we? I'll wear my Steely Dan shirt. <laughs> I was thinking about getting one too. We should become a Steely Dan podcast, probably. I'm, I'm totally down for that. Fuck I yeah. saw that Steely Dan was the last concert I went to. I saw Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers in concert. Yeah, let's do a whole thing on him next week. I'll prep a little bit more. And... Okay, I'll wear yeah. my Steely Dan shirt. So let me okay. know. Is there a Steely Dan movie? We should watch at what? They, they wrote the theme song for FM. It was... There was, there must be like a, I know there's like a VH1 like making of of like Asia and uh, um, Aja and I don't know. I've been listening to mostly Aja and Gaucho, the two that I really love. Uh, uh, let's see. I, I, I recommend Pretzel Logic a lot okay. as well. Pretzel Logic's a really good one. We're gonna get a whole sidetracked here. If we yeah, keep we'll get there next week. So uh, stay tuned for a, a full Steely Dan deep dive early next week. All right. In the in the meantime, I guess we should move on to our film of the week. Yes. Yeah. Um, Another green one. Yeah. Is that all we had? We just had those two. Yeah. 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 Okay. It was it was our our green intro, brief history of green of the movies. <laughs> The Green Knight, and uh, now The Green Mile. Thinking about an earlier age of literature, like in the 19th century, they would be publishing their books through like uh, periodicals. Charles Dickens would do like monthly reports, and that's kind of the shape that Stephen King's agent suggested for uh, The Green Mile, which makes it pretty unique among his books because it was a like a a monthly, I think. I think it came out in like chapter books and it was staggered, uh, which makes it structurally a little different than his like door stopper novels because it's very efficient in its plotting. Like it gets you to an end and then it, you know, concise start. Uh, mm-hmm. So starts and stop that are very efficient. I've been reading the book and uh, parallel to watching the movie. I think this has been one of the more rewarding ones that I've done alongside one of our watches. It's uh, really cool. Class. I've I've always been interested in reading the Green Mile. I just have it like uh, on my co- our collection of Stephen King ones up there. It's not yeah. one of the ones we have, and so the ones we have made through, like we've we've read through like Cujo and, and The Shining, so far, and then we just stopped making our way through, uh, the 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 King books. We read them together, so. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Green Mile was one that has always interested me because I always I loved the film growing up. This was an adolescent David favorite as I think I said at the end of the podcast last week, um, it was, was one of my favorite films and made a, a, a big impact. And I think it still does. Uh, I was I was nervous to kind of go back a little bit, as I often am with films I'm so distanced from. Yeah. 
And particularly because I've put this one off for rewatch because it's just it's so long. It's a three hour movie. That's always such a commitment. You it's know, literally three hours. We're not up. We're not rounding that up. It, no. it ends up like the three hour mark. Yeah. And uh, but it doesn't it's, it's one of those movies. It's like it's very efficiently paced. It doesn't feel like three hours. It just feels like a like a lengthy and enrapturing story that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and it feels like it, you know, needs that three hours to tell everything that happens there. Uh, I, I I think the serialized nature probably helped in, in creating that pacing for the book. But also I think it takes uh, a proficient screenwriter to translate that from the, the page to the screen. And uh, nobody does that better for King than Frank Darabont. I mean, as common as it is to talk about Shawshank, it really is, I mean like an apotheosis of what King's writing could be on the screen. I think between that and this, I think we do have a, an apotheosis and a, and a feeling of what King could really be represented as on the screen. I know we both love misery, maybe the most, but uh, I'm pretty fond of these two also. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure Shawshank is still the number one rated film on IMDb, which is just very odd. Like it's strange. Of, yeah. well, of, uh, like, cause of all films, you're like greatest of all time. Like, I don't think that's one that I think necessarily just, comes to mind. <laughs> it's like a great film that while MDiv was like on the rise, was always on TV and always programmed, right? Like maybe the most accessible film of the 90s was Shawshank based on its cable programming. Mm-hmm. I, I can't figure out definitely... why it would be first, though. I know. It's, it's, a, it's a great film. Uh, I would definitely love to cover it sometime here. Yeah. Uh, but... I, I I don't think it's the better film of the two necessarily. <laughs> but is it the greatest film of all time? Is definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's it's, it's just very interesting. That's the one you landed on. It's like top five King films. I mean, definitely, right? It's it's in that conversation. I wouldn't even mm-hmm. put it in in the top two though. <laughs> so, no, no. Yeah. I mean, uh, and the Green Mile was the most. Um, I believe best box office for a King film until it from a few years ago. So uh, the green mile was also celebrated and well seen and accessible to an audience. It was also one of those hit films from 1999, probably the the second best year in movies. Yeah. What, a, what an incredible roster you got there. And this is one that kind of gets overlooked in that conversation from time to time. Yeah. The green mile kind of gets left out. It's like in, in the midfield there. Um, it's, it's probably cause it's three hours long. Yeah. That's why <laughs> probably. Uh, but at the time that must've been something in the theater to have a film like that coming in at, at three hours in theater time plays a little different. You might be more open to that than you would be at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it just, it flies by for me. So how does it, uh, how, how do you feel it's adapted from the novel versus oh, perfectly like, yeah, of the films I've seen that are adaptations, I think this is like clearly like on the highest rung, like right, like as far as literal adaptations, not ones that go in and change the text and and create something. I know Stephen King said he thought the movie was a little too soft. I don't quite know what he meant, but um, yeah. I don't quite feel that way about the movie. I feel like it <laughs> is about as hard as the book is. There's there's was. a couple moments in particular where I'm like, that's pretty horrifying <laughs> yeah it doesn't not play as horror i know it's his one of his prison movies and it might play more like a fairy tale or like of mice and men adapted to electric chairs but um, <laughs> i find it's still a horror movie i think it still has horror 
horror elements. The the guy cooking in the chair with the yeah, dry that's, sponge. Uh, that's yeah, that that's the moment more so I was alluding to. And like you got the bit just preceding that where Percy stumps on, on Mr. Jingles. That's very sad. Uh, yeah. It's very sad. But yeah, the, the electric chair moment, uh, particularly how it's pulled off with the special effects is just it's gruesome and, and horrifying to watch and the, the the screaming and everyone's like the, the the reaction to it. it's just it's a brilliantly staged scene i have to say all of the components going on there everyone wanting to look away and like the people like there's, there's like the everyone's like stumbling over each other to get out of, of the room because it's so horrifying and the smell and but again like just seeing it like this the his face light on fire yeah is it's just it's just it's this onslaught of horrific imagery just Ugh. just being thrown at you and it's it's really just like like a lot to process in a in a sudden moment there ezra was walking in and i couldn't oh, find no. the remote. like the remote was like buried under the couch because the dog had jumped up and i couldn't find it anywhere she's looking right up at the screen during the uh dry sponge scene i'm, I'm like in a panic i like fly off the couch <laughs> no that's I think awful. she saw a little more than she needed to, but I, I don't think she she registered it as anything. Hopefully uh, not. I guess we'll find out in a few years. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the impetus for this was Stephen King wanted to write a story about an electric chair, and he had the idea of a first-person uh, perspective of a, a guard in a, a lockdown on death row. So he combined those two ideas when he was presented the uh, challenge of the chapter book. So. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an interesting uh, setting for sure, uh, particularly coming off of uh, a couple watches of fil- films in the same era, like uh, Cool Hand Luke and I'm a Fugitive yeah. from a Chain Gang, uh, both set in the South in the 1930s, you know, in the prison system. Uh, and you see little glimpses of that here with like, you know, the the kind of exterior shots of, you know, the, the chain gangs and stuff working. But this one's it's all almost entirely set within the confines of the, the death row area there. So it's a bit of a different perspective there. And it's also different from the, the vantage point of the guards versus usually with the, the inmates who you yeah. know, we're sympathizing with, which kind of changes the, the connotation of any kind of a systematic criticisms there. But also, uh, I don't think it betrays them necessarily either. Although there are some issues you could point to with the uh, yeah, with his regards to uh, the, the the system. Um, it it could be portrayed as like the way we look at like oh, there's one good copper, <laughs> like you know, there's one good guard in a system that's just fundamentally broken and it doesn't address anything further. Maybe it's every other guard is just a bad apple. Yeah, it's well, kind of like the philosophy. It's very, it's very lenient to the, the the personalities of the people working in there. There's one bad person, and he's so awful as yeah. to represent the entirety of of the evil in in the system. Essentially, in in almost kind of a literal way, as you get towards the end of the film, mm-hmm. uh, whereas everyone else is is a very nice person. You know, they're all very you know friendly to all of the prisoners and everyone there. And it's a very unrealistic portrait. Well, they're still sense. flawed. Like the, the other guys still have flaws. I mean, Hanks is like the one that's really, yeah. you know, Christ-like or something. I mean, uh, <laughs> but, but he's like that in every movie. Like you almost is. feel like that's yeah. more of a Tom Hanks thing than a character thing. Almost. It could be a Tom Hanks contract thing, right? Well, I, I just feel like almost sometimes like he he lends himself to that more <laughs> so than than it being there in, yeah, in the script. Yeah. Like I, I don't know. 
I don't want to like like take away from the the lack of issue there in the script, but definitely yeah. it feels like this is a Tom Hanks role through and through. Did you know he was going to star in Shawshank, but he was busy with the filming of Forrest Gump, so uh, he waited and and he got this one instead. Um, I th- I think this would be this is better. Yeah, I sure. think it's better think suited to him. Tim Tim Robbins does a fantastic job in in Shawshank, and I I think that the the reserve of that character is more suited to someone like him as opposed to Hanks. By the way, my only Forrest Gump nostalgia that we'll get on the podcast is probably him talking to Lieutenant Dan out on the porch. <laughs> uh, following Forrest Gump is his last movie. That's that's a great moment. Yeah, that's that's also a, a, a nice scene in which I think you you see like showcase more so the kind of the systemic uh, aspects of racism that, oh, yeah. that bleed through through the character of uh, Lieutenant Dan. We're just yes. going to call him because I don't know who Gary Sinise is. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the 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 dialogue he has the speech about the dog and comparing, you know uh the the black characters to to dogs of course it exhibits this you know very explicit r- racism that even the people who supposedly you know are, are meant to defend them in the court of law obviously had you know this this prejudice against them and so you can see how the system is rigged through through that and that in the, even their defense wasn't uh you know blind so to speak to to that uh issue in hand there so there was an inherent sense of guilt that already came with someone just by their association of color there's been some problematic writing in stephen king around like black characters he's fallen into like the magical negro trope at least four or five times in his books and short stories uh this is one of them i mean uh, the stand is also one that has a, a difficult but not magical character that's black um the shining has one that's uh, somewhat problematic of his yeah. major works those are three um and there's two short stories i believe but um spike lee called this one like a super magical negro <laughs> like a a horrible representation that mostly because it repopularized the magical Negro made it more accessible to Hollywood. Um, he also said it was a, uh, in quotes, grateful slave shit because he didn't use his powers to escape. And he still, you know, became a victim of the system that he had powers to escape. But uh, I, I mean, I get, I kind of agree with that. Well, also like, you know, about the movie. It's kind of undeniable. Yeah, I'm, glad, that's hard. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up in your letterbox review. And I kind of regretted not mentioning it myself. Cause I'm like, it's kind of, blatant and obviously there and it's very yeah. hard to disagree with particularly when the character is portrayed uh uh unintellectually right. uh it kind of adds on to to that n- negativity as well in in that idea uh and you know, it definitely capitalizes on a lot of uh in- inherent stereotypes there to service the story but it's it's also i don't know not to like excuse it but it's kind of this weird ground middle ground where like textually, yeah, that's definitely the case, and uh-huh. it's, it's undeniable. But it, it cannot feel like that in stretches, or it doesn't always feel like it. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to say it's not condescending because uh, obviously my perspective on that is, <laughs> yeah. is vastly different. But uh, it's it's uh, how do I say? Well, the film <laughs> I think accounts for a lot of other elements of empathy. I feel like we feel a lot of empathy for its black characters and. It, we feel emotionally enough about them that maybe we feel excused from it, or maybe it allows us to feel safe about, about watching that. 
what what I'll say as well to this is that I honestly feel like the supernatural elements of the film are the weakest. Parts. I agree. <laughs> uh, it's it, like especially because they don't get introduced till like a half hour or so in, maybe See, more. I think that's what King thinks is stronger in the book, and why that the movie might be soft is those play a little bit more horrorish and and uh, electric and electric, so to speak, in the book. Per, I, I can see that if, if they're more like prevalent, I don't know, because they, they do feel just like a catalyst for for actions and, and a reasonings to sympathize with the with the, the characters here and feel like he's this God given creature when really like <laughs> they're already sympathizing and, and yeah. you know, empathetic towards him. And we are as well through the brilliant performance of Michael Clark Duncan, like you could remove that. Uh, I think element from the film entirely, and you you'll lose some facets. Like obviously, you lose the 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 kind of bookends to the story and the yeah. significance of that that ending. You lose the retribution that you get against the the evil characters in the film, which is fine because it's really ham fisted anyway. It is. Yeah. Uh, but all of the things that really work about the films, the relationship between the characters, the setting, you know, the the detail, the environment, the horror of the system and, you know, the the electric chair and the whole process of that, that's all preserved and, and untainted by the, the magical elements of it. So, uh, you know, honestly, it's it's a it's an important component for what the film is, but it's the weakest one for sure. Yeah. And. I mean, Michael Clark Duncan is so good too. I can overlook his his elements of magic and and how that enters the story. Um, I feel like the characters are also flawed. Um, they have enough natural flaws that that they would be interesting. Um, having Hanks with his uh, character's urinary tract infection, I think, is really fun and and clever, cleverly described in the book too. Uh, it says how like a a man could be peeing outside and just have a northern wind hit him and and that'll cause a UTI. Like I thought that was so funny. Just like the the um anything could happen. Nature will happen and and men will feel that. Um and so for him, like the representation of the Green Mile too, like such a long space with so much pressure on it and uh what re revolving around his manhood and then his relationship around his wife and getting that back to uh that's that's definitely another thing I gotta ask about that. How is like sex portrayed in the book because that's another infamous kingism and in the film yeah. it's it's done with with pretty much you know with good class like there's the scene yeah. where yeah he you know he gets his urinary tract infection taken away then he bones his wife four times uh, in a row uh and i think and, that's the kingism of it right is that oh yeah four times yeah like you can't you can't erase that. Into that yeah but but darabont manages to present it in in a non-crass manner like somehow just, yeah yep it comes across all right you're like all right but like i can imagine there's like a half a chapter dedicated to him fucking his wife in, in the book more, i think yeah <laughs> and, and it's, it's and it's probably really grossly detailed and bizarre i mean for all his good twitter advocacy he always had has had a few problems but uh, uh yeah i mean it's it's better portrayed in the movie i think <laughs> I didn't make any notes on it though, so not as bad as other kings. I guess I guess it didn't stand out as no. versus some other ones. There's some really it's fucking it's hard weird when ones you're listening there. to a book, by the way. When you're listening to a book, you might not get like all the subtext or something that you might get reading it. Sure, sure. I think there's uh not not to dismay audiobook listeners yeah. out there, because I'm one of you. Uh I've, I've, you know, I'm I'm a terrible actual reader i read like at a snail's pace but i think you get more when you have to physically transfer the words from the page into your mind yeah as opposed um, to having them like 
injected in for you. Like something like a sexual scene being oddly described, I may need, I might think nothing of it being read to me. You know, I, yeah, I don't know. There's there's some like uh, in Pet Cemetery, his his wife yeah. gives him a hand job with a sponge. Yeah, and that's really weird. What's the it's thing just, with the sponges? I don't know. It's like it doesn't it doesn't even sound good. It's like a sponge glove, and it's like that would be really coarse and uncomfortable. And I I don't see how that. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> A uh, very, very strange hand job in the Green Knight, by the way. Uh, so we'll catch <laughs> that. Um, a lot of coming on uh, green robes. <laughs> so, so that happens in that movie. Um, but yeah, um, God, let's talk more about the good things in the Green Knight. Yeah. I think it's easy to fixate on the bad, but uh, I think it's just such a, a, a wonderfully detailed story. The The direction is so sure throughout and uh you've got again a great cast of characters not just hanks and michael clark duncan but uh david morse is uh brutal and uh you've got james cromwell as the uh warden and the other prison inmates uh delacroix and uh Pitabuck even he's a uh, good as well he's played by graham green not the author <laughs> but a, a native american actor who okay. is also green <laughs> um I think they all function such like a lived in way too, right? Like the characters feel like they've been there. The ones that have been there, the ones that are new feel new. Um, they, they just feel like they, they embody someone that would, that would be in that system for a long time. Uh, I feel it. I feel the distance of time. I think the three hours is very important in that respect too, because you're in prison for a long time. It's called doing time. Um, it is related to, to that experience. I think, I think being long, also relates you to being locked down. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and you get the sense, like I said, living with those characters and, and kind of getting these, I think the, it's a very sympathetic film to a lot of it. I know it yeah. takes uh, the the crimes of several of the characters out of the picture here versus the book. Mm-hmm. Like, I believe in the novel, if I remember right, Delacroix was an arsonist. I really like this phase where they were having directors do like two movies, like you had Rob Reiner do like Stand By Me, Fall By Misery. And then we had this guy doing uh, Shawshank and like a prison, a, what do you call it? Not a trilogy. A, double feature? Yeah, double feature of prison movies. I like those thematically. Darabont did have one other King film oh, he that did. he directed. Yeah. Uh, have you ever seen The Mist? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think I have seen The Mist. It's yeah. a Darabont film. Probably not as strong as Shawshank and Green Mile, but it's very good still. Um the the film and one of the big things with it is that uh the ending was something he very much insisted on it was a different ending than what king said but king said later that had he thought of that ending he would have absolutely made it uh the one for the film and it's a uh, it's a fantastic cap on that film and a very interesting uh story contained in like this local grocery store while uh the these kind of uh, the the world outside is engulfed by a mysterious mist which kind of yeah. crazy Lovecraftian monsters pop out of. Kind of want to watch that again. Should. Um, I know that King really liked Darabont too, and that he was always saying um, he was just the sweetest guy to work with, and I think he had like a, a very pleasant working relationship with him making his movies, which mm-hmm. I wish continued. The the other thing that Darabont, of course, went on to do was he, you know, headed into the, the beginning of The Walking Dead. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Which, the beginning of The Walking Dead is The Walking Dead that I like. So yeah. <laughs> I, I like the first season. I like the first episode, especially. Was that yeah. Darabont? 
Yep, he okay. th that's the episode he directed as well. But that's he... the one I love. I don't care about the rest, honestly. <laughs> yeah, he was he was the uh, creator for the the show, but I think he left after a couple seasons. There's only like twelve seasons now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he like the the show is very much not his from like the third season onwards. But what what people generally consider the good part of Walking Dead, i.e., the very very beginning. Yeah. Uh, that's him. That makes sense to me because the directing chops are so strong right away in The Walking Dead that I connected to it and then I just faded once I got to season two, three, four. Mm -hmm. Just no interest. Um, I hear it as like spikes later on, like good episodes, but uh, I, I don't have time for 12 seasons with good episodes in it. Yeah, he hasn't done much since. No. It's almost been like 10 years since his last thing which was he developed a series called mob city it says here is that really his last he's just he's done um i don't know uh it's he could um, be retirement age <laughs> he's born in 59 he could be getting up there now sure but i mean i hope not uh, i think he's got some some interesting stuff here and again yeah. i think it, it would be a shame to to lose that because there is such uh so, so many wonderful components i think in the filmmaking of the Green Mile especially, but his other films too. Like the last three, four years have really been a return to like Stephen King adaptations, I feel like. Yeah. And I feel like if like Netflix or someone offered him, you know, come back to your last movie, do a King, I'd I'd watch it. I'd have to mm -hmm. watch it. We need to see some, a, a new take on Salem's Lot or The Stand again or something. We're waiting for those definitive versions of those to come around. Maybe a better, more faithful adaptation of The Shining? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. uh, you can only do better. So, <laughs> At least according to us, I guess. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, I feel like The Shining, the problem with The Shining was always that it didn't, for me, get like the, the characters of Stephen King, right? Which he always had them pretty analogous to actual humans and the way they think. And I think that's what really connects in all this fiction that that really does in the Green Mile and doesn't for me in The Shining. Oh, I can say now, having read The Shining, that I don't think it's a good book either. So yeah, I, I don't uh, know if it's like, <laughs> I don't know if it's starting as a good story either. So. Well, just some of it is very cartoonish. I think even <laughs> even in the the book there, some of it's pretty outlandish and severe, as some of King's pulpy writing tends to be. Like none none of his stuff, I think, is. Uh, I, I look at it as, you know, paperback entertainment a, yeah. a lot of it with, with some, you know, kind of deeper ideas that it's kind of chipping away at, but nothing really super impactful. Lots of the times it's, it's, you know, very entertaining stuff and it's interesting, but it's not, you know, uh, necessarily poetic or moving, but I think something like, or at least from what I can tell from the adaptation of the green mile here is where he, he is able to get there. Yeah. And, some ways and create these characters that you can really get into and get into the identity of and be swept up in again like so, some of this is so fabricated so like kind of like like idealized like i said about so many of these characters they're just the mo most wholesome empathetic versions of people that you can kind of imagine the fact that all of them they're like oh they're they risk their job all of them just totally all in on risking their their job here in the yeah. middle of the depression to uh you know escort an inmate out of prison to go heal their boss's wife from <laughs> cancer 
probably maybe <laughs> it's like i mean that's a it's a little leap in logic there for their you know hum humanitarian beliefs but uh i i buy it because of the presentation here and the, the yeah. time spent with these characters and getting involved with them and seeing with it like the performances and the dialogue you know the the dynamics between everyone really extends my suspension of disbelief to make those moments work like if i try and look at it you know just in and of itself there it seems like a little much but that's that's how good it, it is is it's composed right. here all the elements come together is that yeah i i when i watch it in context i don't i don't think about it twice <laughs> yeah i'm not even a stephen king book guy i think i like his movies better than his books i should say i think that he did like Dance Macabre, which is my favorite book by him, which is just his history with horror movies. And it shows that he has an inherently cinematic understanding of characters and how people act and how to write cinematically. I think that's why he's so well adaptable. And the other one is on writing, which uh, he gives some of my favorite writing advice. Um, uh, I like hearing him talk about writing more than I like re reading his writing. But um, uh, I like his advice that if you just submit six stories and nobody notices uh keep going if you do 66 then you're you've got a good start and you're dedicated keep going if you do 666 no one responds just give up on writing i thought that was great advice <laughs> that last one's a little disparity yeah but, uh... i don't know if that's the exact quote but that's that's how i've remembered it would, would you say of so uh, you said you're reading the Green Mile, but I assume you've read others. Would you say this one fares better than other novels overall? Like, what's what's your Stephen King ranking here? I have. It's complicated since I have such a cult fandom for uh, Dreamcatcher, which mm -hmm. I think was badly adapted into a movie that I still kind of like because it's so stupid. But um, <laughs> I really like Dreamcatcher though of his of his fiction. I know that's problematic or or bad in bad taste. Um, <laughs> And I like the Dark Tower, which is probably also problematic, bad taste. Uh, so I mean, lots of people like the Dark Tower, yeah. at least as a as a book. Again, like it's it's funny then because you're like film film wise, I like this stuff more, but the film versions of his books are they, terrible. Both <laughs> of those two read so cinematically too. It's so it's so hard to imagine. Maybe they're hard to film, but they read like they would be good cinema. They would. I think that's why I like from him. I like it, of course. It is very hard to get through but it's uh, the, the big thing i hear it, it is that it's super messy but yeah. it's got uh very special qualities to it and may i don't know I, I don't feel the itch to get to it anytime soon but yeah. uh i'm not a big fan of the more recent it films i didn't watch the second one yeah. but the first one it didn't, gets worse isn't much but i've got i've got a huge uh i got a huge affection for tim curry so the TV version from 1990. Uh, we're both fans of that one. I think we've covered fa both. fans with reservation. We're fans it's... of Tim Curry in the it movie on the TV it movie. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't read a ton of other King. I thought Pet Cemetery is only fine. Um, I, I'm not that impressed. I like his son, <laughs> Joe Hill. I like his son, Joe Hill, better as a writer. I think um, he writes good short stories, though. I I don't think he would write a great book. I think I like his short stories better than his books. Joe mm -hmm. Hills. Are, are there any other standout things from the the Green Mile, the the film particularly, uh, that that really leave an impact with you? Just the just the empathy and like the the total emotional wreckage of that that one line. 
eyes scared of the dark as as he puts the oh god that that destroyed me and it it has the few times i've seen this Mm -hmm. i think that's that's the biggest thing the film has an emotional heft to it that's really hard to to not be bowled over by you know those those problematic elements persist but uh the the emotional swing of everything is is generally enough to kind of win you over and be taken by everything and and to appreciate both again they're not exclusive to to one another but i think that the story can still be compelling and moving while portraying negative stereotypes and reviving um old old, uh, prejudices yeah yeah it's so hard to get around that that last (laughs) scene and then the the scene afterward that that's there with the mouse is is fun too that's a very 90s way to end a movie is to have like a uh, older recollections of what was happening yeah that happened in maybe a hundred you're saving private ryan's and stuff yeah exactly and your schindler's lists and Mm -hmm. that was really a hallmark of like those uh deeply sentimental 90s movies that i think this is a a good representation of yeah i think probably the best of those again like the bookends is something like i'm like i could go with or without but if you do take it without then you lose a component of it because the idea i think that's probably some of the most horror of the film this idea that tom hanks's character has to just live on for god knows how long yeah because he was imbued his power and it's this idea of a curse for for killing um, a, a living miracle essentially even though it was you know he, he was in, invited to essentially and asked to yeah yeah it brings up i think it's just a good indictment of like the death penalty and uh just how we dispose of prisoners and maybe the prison system without even being a literal critique of them. I think there's a, you know, there's a bunch of ways to skin a cat. And I think this also could tackle like the death penalty in a a more interesting way without being systemic necessarily. Mm -hmm. So I think it does that. The the death penalty, as far as I know, I think in most everywhere, at least in this country is, is now outlawed. I feel like Texas still. I I don't, I don't think they have the, death penalty still i don't i don't think again i would have to see this and you know what i'm i'm going to because i feel like that's right how many states use the death penalty oh damn uh it says here only 22 states plus washington dc have abolished the death penalty that is uh, (laughs) uh, not even um yeah that's okay i'm looking at this map here luckily we we have abolished it i was surprised you had said that none have it because i feel like i constantly hear stories still about death row and i i hadn't i thought but okay. yeah the the south largely still has an active death penalty which is wow that's crazy to me i guess you learned something okay so, well, te- well my day just got worse Says <laughs> texas alone has 205 inmates on death row currently so it's still a pretty active process, sadly. Yeah, and in and in Louisiana, where this film takes place, that never went away. I guess so. Yeah, I, I guess the film didn't accomplish what it <laughs> needed. To. Well, that's a depressing way to to end this, but I think <laughs> I've I've said about all I can. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a depressingly hard movie to really talk about in depth without getting there. I think. Well, I think it's it's to to me so much of it is the compulsion of the narrative and the characters are really wrapped up in and taken by and without just sitting here and saying, yeah, these are good. These are good. This is what happens. Yeah. It's harder to talk about it in a more abstract sense. The I could talk about the direction and how interesting 
um, you know, different angles and the editing of certain sequences really, you know, compels things and makes it enrapturing. But sometimes it's just like, it's one of those experiences where I'm just taken in from beginning to end that I can't stop and actually think about the film at times. You know, I'm just too involved into what's happening on screen. Yeah. Um, next week we'll be back with how uh, green was my valley. Uh, I believe. <laughs> uh, no, no, we we got to take a break from green films, unfortunately. A little too much green this episode. Uh, we're going with uh, The Sting from 1973. Uh, what color would you use to represent the, the sting? Uh, sepia. Sepia, okay. <laughs> it's it's a 1930s set film, so I guess we're sticking with that theme. We're, the, we're still in the depression. Well, thanks, David. I know we went a little shorter, but I think we got what we needed. It's a, it's okay. We went shorter because uh, I'm a little out of it, as you can tell, I'm sure. A little sick. Didn't have as much to cover this week because we I well. spent the majority of it in bed. I think we did decently. It, the, the more we disparage our our time here, the more it'll seem humble, I think. <laughs> yes. What a bad show. Um, please yes, subscribe terrible. to this uh, <laughs> podcast. We'll do better next time. <laughs> no, I think we did all right. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in this week. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us as well on Twitter at The Twin Geeks and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast with Pavlos and Brogan, as well as our supplementary Ranking the Monsters with Calvin and Steven. Uh, all are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can. We'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. And your ears just won't ring. And your eyes just won't Turn